welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. How do you pronounce your last name? Um, there's a there's a way, like a Thai way to say it. It's someone home, but I kind of just let people go with whatever they want. <laughs> Because I get that question so often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, to my English-confined brain, (laughs) it does not look like what you just said. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just just love Sydney. And, you know, this is, God is not an asshole. And a few days ago, I was an asshole to Sydney. um, (laughs) Because... You know, I, I, I didn't use uh, their pronouns properly. Sometimes I backslide. And this is what's so beautiful about having, uh, so far, Sydney's the youngest person we've had on. And um, this is what's so wonderful about having younger people because it, it gives people who are older, like myself, an opportunity to practice humility and learning and changing and growing instead of stagnating. And, you know, I think you can go one way or the other, you know, uh, you could just like, like resist change and, uh, become really irrelevant if, if not pro- seriously problematic. But, um, let me just say how I, how I met Sydney, her, her mom came to our, uh, comes to our, our church. And so Sydney came with her and it has just happened to be on a Sunday where, uh, I took I read something from the Bible and put it up on the screen, but I used uh, gender neutral pronouns for God. And that kind of got Sydney's attention. I don't always do that. And sometimes I make them feminine or, or whatever. Um, and so Sydney was over the house later that day uh, with her, with her mom. Her mom is just a beautiful presence. Uh, Naomi. There, she just like their uh, mom. There, see, <laughs> see, it's what happens with a 68 year old brain that's trying to catch up. <laughs> um, and and so their mom, uh, Naomi, who is just a beautiful presence, just like uh, you know, the an exemplar of humility, in my view, who is able to support uh, Sydney. And I, you know, I, I've just been trying to pick her breath pick their brain, pick their brain to learn, to grow. Sydney is a graduate student at UCLA. Public policy is her field, is their field. I'm just doing this. You know what? I understand. Coffee somebody. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I just, I'm, I'm fascinated with uh, the, the way that you 
you emerged from an evangelical experience as a as a child and you you discovered yourself and uh, and you did not apologize for discovering yourself and mm-hmm. uh, being really truly countercultural so uh, i i would love if you would just take it away sydney and just share some of your experience oh let me ask carrie you doing okay Oh, I'm good. I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Right. <laughs> no worries about me. <laughs> Yay. I can't Take wait to hear from Sydney. Sydney. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I kind of have a long and complicated relationship with religion. I grew up Christian and Buddhist, actually, because my parents, my mom is Christian and my dad is Buddhist. And it was it's funny because like Sunday is like the holy day for both religions. So it would be a lot of like, Oh, I'm taking this Sunday. No, I'm taking this Sunday. And it was um, some problems there. And um, that's probably the reason why both me and my sister have ended up, you know, not, not really religious. Um, that actually might have like pushed us away, you know. Mm. But yeah, uh, after my parents separated, uh, we kind of, my mom, my sister, and I kind of bounced from church to church. I had some weird experiences in a wide range of church churches. Um, we've been to like, Japanese churches, um, Hispanic churches, Black churches, a lot of pretty wide range of experiences. And I think between me and God, me and my mom, like there wasn't really a problem. My main problem was uh, my experiences with the church, um, the churches themselves, and kind of noticing the hypocrisy and um, the hate that drives so many of them, you know, being taught to love thy neighbor, but not really feeling loved by mine. So especially in the realm of um, when I started into my adolescence, realizing that I was queer from a relatively young age. Um, I grew up before gay marriage was legalized in all 50 states. Um, So it wasn't, it it wasn't just society. Um, It was especially in the churches that uh, I had experiences in at a young age, facing a lot of hatred, even if it wasn't directly towards me I mean, sometimes it was, but even if it wasn't, there would always be kind of like an uncomfortable feeling, either not talking about it or, you know, using the Bible to justify some of that. And I got involved in like social advocacy at a pretty young age. Um, and so in my early teens, I, you know, began to grow, you know, like the angsty teen. I began to grow a little resentful of organized religion. And so yeah, like wondering how do I find a community amongst this group of people who think that I'm going to burn in hell. So um, there was kind of that distance and disconnect, um, distrust. And I know that had that did hurt my mother to hear those kinds of things. But um, I didn't really talk to her about like specifically why I felt that way. And but it was never about her. And I never resented her for any of it. And then so. Yeah, that was kind of how it was through my teens. Um, But then a few years later, uh, when I was doing my undergraduate, my mother's partner died. And I was just furious. (laughs) Because my mother, she's this sweet, beautiful, selfless woman who's done nothing but give and sacrifice um, so much to raise her two kids on her own. After my father cheated on her, she would be working multiple jobs, um, graveyard shifts, and never one's complaining about it. Yeah. 
So then after all these years of being selfish, she finally meets someone and someone who makes her so happy and made her a huge basketball fan and loved her. And they were just perfect for each other. And then from my view, God took him from her. It was cancer. And I was so like unbelievably mad, mainly because my mother was so unwavering in her faith. But from my perspective, it was like, how could God do this to someone so like, so amazing and so faithful to to her her religion um, and who's gone through so much? So yeah, I get I get emotional about this when I think about it. Not because I was close to him necessarily, but um, because she just found happiness in that. So yeah, that's a really that's a really deep pain, um, yeah. and especially especially to to think that this so-called loving God would just arbitrarily do that, right? There's this theology that God is in control is what, by by default, then God has to be uh, doing these cruel things where we are losing people that we care about, right? And that's a deeply painful yeah. thing. Yeah, and I did, I did bring that up to my mom. Um, and she kind of just laughed and she was like, yeah, that's a very common like mindset for when uh, bad things happen. People, you know, go directly to blaming God. Like, if he has control over everything, why would he do this? Um, these people don't deserve it. You can say that in, like, the context of, like, wars or, yeah, sickness. So, yeah, that was kind of my my journey through that, um, my rationale through, um, through what I think now based on everything that um, I've been through in the past. So... Thank you so much for sharing that story. That that it's so it's a powerful story. Um, I'm curious to know where you where you land regarding faith, if at all, right now. You know, um, but before we get into that, I'm also really um, I wanted to just point out that one of the things that I noticed in what we've talked about so far is this idea that you are leaning into the fullest of your authenticity, right? Like the, the, you're leaning into the, the fullest um, expression of your authenticity as you know it right now, right? We're, we are all still becoming, we're all um, in a process of becoming. So who knows, who knows who you will be, you know, 10, 20 years from now? Yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but the fact that you're, you're already willing to go, go there, um, I think is, is a really beautiful thing because I know for me at my age and, uh, you know, I'm in my early fifties to, to lean into my full authentic, authentic self is still terrifying. Um, it's still terrifying and, and it, it requires a, a, a group of people around me who, who create safe spaces for that to happen. Um, so, so your, your search for community is really important. And, um, the other thing that I also just want to acknowledge and, and say that I appreciate and love is how in the very beginning, how David, you're so willing to lean into the discomfort of becoming, right? As a society, I think we are all becoming hopefully better at um, making space to embrace individual becoming, right? And that part of that requires us to change things like the way we have uh, thought, think language is supposed to work, right? And to lean into the discomfort is I think one of the most hospitable, loving, and if I may say so, Christian things to do, 
right? To lean into that, the discomfort, to uh, our own discomfort, to create a safe space for other people. So um, I just want to thank both of you because that was that was um, demonstrated here today, both of you. So where do you, where are you now? Like as far as your faith and if you have one, if you know, um, how, how would you describe it now? I don't necessarily feel a certain faith. Um, I don't deny like the existence of God, but I've kind of just, I feel disconnected from it and I don't really feel uh, a motivation to, to find that. However, when my mom told me that she started this, she started going to this new church, um, well past the point where she stopped like forcing me to go to church. Um, she told me about this new church that she was in and she was like, oh, they call them like, you know, they refer to an unchurch. And I was like, that's very interesting, um, given my previous experiences um, of like Christianity, evangelical Christianity. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was that was very interesting, and so um, kind of learning that my experiences aren't completely like that's not the common default, you know. And mm-hmm. that there was people who held this faith, very strong faith, and still um, approached it with like an open mind, and you know this this willingness to to adapt and recognize that things are not stagnant and interpretations of the Bible are not you know, one and done kind of thing. Yeah. Very inspiring and I respect that. It's interesting that how, you know, I think culturally we, we think of the, uh, especially the three major world religions, but religion as a way to reach morality. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and then we find that uh, sometimes it's successful. I mean, but the person has to have more in mind more in view, more more of a moral compass to use their religion to get to that place. And often religion is used, as we know, as a cudgel to divide and to conquer. And so, you know, I'm operating under, you know, a colonization, uh, not surrendering to it. You know, I'm 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 fighting it mentally. You know, it's not it's not a, a, a well, I was going to say it's not violent, but in some ways it it's violent uh, because I'm fighting oppression and I cannot fight for you, Sydney. Uh, I cannot fight for myself if I'm not fighting for you. That's kind of, you know, that's like a divided consciousness. And, and I feel like if I fight for you, I'm fighting for all of us. I'm fighting for anybody who is living in a, st- a socially stigmatized body. You know, and that's really what we're here about. You know, the three of us are on right now. We're here about resisting the stigma that society puts on us because of where we live inside of ourselves, inside our bodies. Well, yeah, all oppression. This, the body is the site of all oppression, right? It's it's the site of it. You know, we are oppressed because of the bodies that we walk around in and that we live in, and we are the, the body is the site of the oppression, whether it, whether it's being regulated or you know, disempowered or controlled as it moves through space and time, you know, there are, it, the body is the site of oppression. So embodiment is, uh, you can't, you can't have a spiritual conversation about oppression without talking about the body, basically. And I think that very often church, Christian, the Christian church, especially evangelicalism, fundamentalism, I, I should, I should say, I should, do my my seminary professor proud and make the distinction that 
a lot of what uh, we call evangelicalism in America today, he insists is actually fundamentalism. And he's, he's right. He, he, I took a whole class with him about it and he's, he's actually very, very, very right. And um, I think that, that fundamentalism hates to, to address the body. And that comes from really bad theology that was passed down to us, you know, but to your point too, David, about colonization as a, as a white bodied person, I, think about colonization a lot. I think about the ways in which Christian, the the institutionalized Christian church colonized and and Europe Europe and in doing so decimated the indigenous practices of Europe, right? Which removed, you know, for for example, as a my Irish heritage, right? We've lost our language. We've been able to keep our our music, but we've our our language has been decimated, our religion was decimated. Our wisdoms were decimated, especially our women's wisdoms were decimated. And so thinking about the ways that, um, and, and I also, I hesitate to use the word colonization because there is rightfully so a, a very important emphasis on what has happened to indigenous populations here in the United States and in the Americas, I should say, and, um, and in Africa. And that's important. But I think for, for white-bodied healing of this, of the traumas that we've, uh, that we are now experiencing and in not doing our healing work, we're just like vomiting it all over society is, uh, is this essential colonization, the, the colonization of the Christian church that, that, um, decimated our own lineages. And Ruby Sales was a person who talked to me about that. She, she stared me in the eyeballs and she said, tell us who Ruby Sales is. Ruby Sales is an activist and a womanist theologian, a public theologian. And when she was 17 years old, she was standing on the, the, the front porch of a, of a general store and a white guy with a shotgun, a rifle came up and, and aimed the rifle at her, pulled the trigger and a young seminarian, a white, young, young white man threw himself in front of her and took the bullet and died instantly, which obviously changed the course of her life. And, um, so she actually, I had this immense pleasure of, of uh, learning from her and sitting at her feet. And she literally held my hand in her lap and she stared me in the eyeballs and she said, whiteness is flattening and homogenizing you. It is stealing the legacies of your lineages. And I've never forgotten that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. yeah, that like that is the genesis for all the work that I do in the world. That That right there is the reason that I do the work that I do. And mm-hmm. so when I think about that, and I think about what whiteness actually is and what it's done. And I come back to the ways that wow. what we, we are so disengaged from our own lineages um, that he, and haven't colonized. Last night, my meditation, as I you know, sat in quietness, my meditation was, imagine white people actually inhabiting their bodies. Right, right. <laughs> what would happen if we actually did that? That's a big part of what I'm working on in my doctorate work, actually, that what, what would happen if we actually did that? Because as, as we've already said, the body is the site of, of all oppression. So let's bring Sydney back into this conversation yes, yes. because I know that uh, we, we raised the temperature and so you're starting to boil. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead and, and tell us where you are. Uh, I, think, I think that was really interesting and a very you know, inspiring story that... It's interesting because I've never heard it put that way before. And my mind immediately uh, went to, you know, like the existence of white privilege, uh, how even if the racism doesn't, doesn't exist, 
Uh, they, um, a lot of white people don't take responsibility for or even acknowledge the fact that they have that white privilege, that their bodies are like the existence of the bodies and themselves give them the privilege um, that they're not being uh, inherently racist, not understanding okay. that systemic, you know, it's yes. been ingrained into our system since the beginning of, of history and this. Um, and it's very, it's very intertwined with the church too. Right, right. This um, superiority complex that colonialism is very tied to the church. Um, this idea that there are these people of color, they need to be, you know, they need to be educated because they're not, mm-hmm. um, because they're not, and they're lesser. Oh, yeah. And I think that definitely translate translates over to where we are now. Um, the idea of neoliberalism, uh, how things are, you know, we're past a racist society um, and not recognizing these, these white bodies that give them certain, certain privileges that are not acknowledged. Is this right. part of, yes. Sydney, is this part of what uh, led you to pursue public policy as a graduate student? It definitely is. Um, my original plan for life was uh, law school. I was pursuing law school. However, I, I had some health problems while I was studying with the LSAT that made me um, unable to pursue that path, that path. But, you know, I think it worked out for the better because, um, because of where I am now. Um, and definitely the main motivation, for example, my, my concentration in public policy is social policy um, with the emphasis on uh, racial equality and um, well, nonprofit work, but always in the realm of that and looking at intersectionality specifically, uh, which is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw of uh, UCLA, professor of law. Uh, and her, like, I think that intersectionality touches every aspect, regardless of what social issue we're talking about. Um, it, so deeply ingrained. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw originally intended that to be, um, or not, not intended that, but it is a way um, to describe the black black woman's experiences. Uh, so, and then that term kind of was, um, the word expanded into other other identities. Um, yeah, it's definitely it touches every part of our lives, and you know, I I think that's forgotten pretty often in a neoliberal world. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us other ways in which you specifically, uh, your identity plays into all of this? Yeah. If, I mean, if we're talking specifically in the context of religion, you know, being, being queer has been a big part of that. Uh, just being, well, being queer and a person of color, a lot of time in, a lot of times in queer spaces, um, it's kind of dominated by like the white gay experience and kind of, Queer issues are treated as like, oh, they're one and the same, not not acknowledging the role that intersectionality has to play in it, in which, you know, black trans women have the highest rates of, of death and um, lowest rates of access to medical care and um, poverty, homelessness. I, I do a lot of um, suicide intervention, stu- uh, suicide intervention um, with with the Trevor Project, where I talk to queer youth. Um, who are experiencing crises. And, you know, a lot of the people who reach out to me, a lot of the young individuals who reach out to me are are trans and people of color and um, face the most intense, not to discredit anyone else's experiences, but, you know, rates of homelessness of like 
my parents have kicked me out. Um, they've disowned me because I'm trans, especially in, uh, for, for people of color. And so, yeah, the, the experience from a, like a media perspective, for example, um, a news perspective, a lot of it's like, oh, this is the queer experiences and we're addressing the queer experiences. But in my, in my experience, it's, it's very different. What, uh, the, you know, as you work with the Trevor Project, oh, you know what, it might be a good idea to to introduce us or our audience mm-hmm. to the Trevor Project, but also in your work with the Trevor Project, mm-hmm. what role, I mean, you talk about, you know, being kicked out by their parents, that kind of thing. Um, to what degree do you see their religion contributing to that kind of, you know, uh, lack of openness? I think a lot of the times, I, there's not always time to delve into like the main source of, of the hatred that they face from their families. But I mean, I suspect that a lot of it has to do with religion, especially for maybe like the white trans folk who, who are reaching out. But, um, yeah, all, all I can do is make assumptions because usually that's not like the first go to, um, pressing issue but definitely i do believe that a lot of the source of that very well could be religion it's not it's not something that is typically open to change not specifically christianity but just religion in general um, it's uh, but it's not very often that i meet um, very religious people who are open to accepting mm-hmm. different identities I think it's important to understand that in the United States, um, even if somebody is uh, claims atheism, that they are still living in a society that has been deeply uh, that has values that have been deeply formed by by a, a puritanical Christian faith. That's not to say by any stretch of the imagination that you know the founding fathers were all Christians and they intended this to be a Christian nation because that's that's patently untrue. However, um, th- th- those values have been woven into our our value system. Um, so even if somebody, you know, does does not, and and those value systems include toxic patriarchy, toxic masculinity. They include, you know, a deep sense of misogyny, a deep sense of anti blackness and anti brownness, um, and a deep fear of the other. Right. And so I think it's really important that people understand the ways that and the value systems that that they've been indoctrinated into so that they can begin to actually question them and and deconstruct them and, and ask if they actually really want them there, you know, if they understand where they come from. So I don't I don't really I didn't really have a, a question, but do you have any thoughts about that, about how that how you might see that in operation in your own experience? Yeah, um, I think one thing that stuck out uh, to me when you said that. I was thinking about, you were talking about the founding fathers and how they didn't intend uh, for the state to be religious, which is, you know, that's exactly the separation of church and state, right? Um, But I think it's very, very ironic with how, where that leads us to now and the justification that a lot of lawmakers use um, in the Supreme Court um, rooted in traditions of religion. Uh, we claim that this is not that there is a separation of church and state, but sure doesn't feel that way um, a lot of the time. So, 
yeah, I, I definitely, that, that's the source of, you know, my beliefs and like the tendency, the common notion of hypocrisy that is such a big part of why America is kind of backwards, even though it's considered the, like, such a, you know, we're, we're a, such a liberal country compared to others that are like, dominated by religion but you know if we pull pull back the layers i feel like there's a deep rooted problem in that and that um yeah it's it's hidden Uh, i want you to to introduce us to the trevor project but first i uh, a a comment um, as you were talking and uh, and carrie was talking i reflected on how ruth gator ruth bader ginsburg not a christian in any way cited the doctrine of discovery and her support of, you know, the exclusion of the Oneida indigenous uh, tribe in New York uh, some years ago. And so there she was. She's not a Christian, but she uses Catholic, uh, you know, Catholic thought uh, in the way of oppression. And that might be kind of a model to way how our society functions, you know, just whatever it takes to um, keep people excluded. You, you know, even if it's not your religion, as you were saying, you know, religion in general. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, the doctrine of discovery is such an inherently racist document there. Like there's there's so much in there that is is. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it was basically just using it was a way to it was a, a legal reli- or religious loophole that was used mm-hmm. to um, conquer and decimate indigenous populations all over the globe. Um, for the sake of greed and wealth, right? That's essentially what it was. And um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty horrible document. So for, for, to your point, for a non-Christian Supreme Court judge who was also lauded as one of the most, you know, justice oriented, like, yeah. you know, so somebody who was supposed to be so amazing for her to use that in her decision even and, much less use it to justify her her decision is a little terrifying. Yeah, that shows a little terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, systemic issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yes, tell us about the Trevor Project. Yeah, the, the Trevor Project is a fantastic organization, a nonprofit organization that um, advocates for queer youth, LGBTQ youth who are um, experiencing crises at home. We have a... We have a hotline and a text chat system that anyone can go to. We serve youth from anywhere from 13 to 24. And um, they can just come and tell us what's on their mind, um, why they're feeling this way. Um, we, we, we just provide support and, um, you know, try to point them to the resources that they need. Um, and I, I believe that Trevor also does um things outside of suicide intervention like um they they do they do outreach and providing resources to to queer youth and um, even some some policy work and advocating for for that i have to um to thank you for doing this work for participating in it because it often seems like the people who are doing the most critical work are the least recognized you know i was yeah. i was telling our veterinarian on on veterans day that um you're the vets that mm-hmm. i mean you're the vets who are heroes 
<laughs> so thank you, uh, Sydney, for for oh, doing this work. You. And uh, no. how can how can we uplift the Trevor yeah. Project and and in your role in it? So it's not. I don't think my work is necessarily something that needs to be uplifted. But because my my motivation for what I do, what I do, is because you know, growing up, that was exactly where I was. Um, I was a suicidal um, teenager who one of the main reasons why that was my situation was because of my queer identity. And so I understand what it's like to feel alone. And um, thankfully, my family wasn't the one who ostracized me, but definitely um, society in general, just hearing about like, um, I mean, obviously, it's a huge problem now. But before gay marriage was legalized, there was like this huge anxiety around that. Like, oh, am I like, I feel like an imposter. I feel like something bad's going to happen. And um, I know that a lot of uh, young people now, especially in states like, you know, Florida and Texas, where all these bans are happening, feel that as well. So I feel like I I have something to offer there. But yeah, the Trevor Project itself is a wonderful organization. And um, I just think that, you know, it it should be known. It, sh- it should just, the services are there and uh, we're there for them. And I just want... Um, people to know, queer youth to know that there are people looking out for them. Definitely. What would you, what would you love? And, and we can, I don't know, I don't know, David, if you had any, any other questions or if this can be, or can be wrapping up, but I, I'm curious to know if you had a message for the church regarding the LGBTQ community and specifically youth, what would, what would you want the church to know? That's just what I was about to ask Sydney as well. <laughs> I think the youth are our future. And whether you like it or not, things are changing and people are becoming more comfortable and accepting who they are. I think this common notion among the church or just society in general, but like, like, oh, there's like being queer is cool now. Like there's so many more queer people. And that's just simply not true. It's more, it's that they feel more comfortable to, you know, there's, they see these sources of support, like the Trevor Project and people around them who are showing um, that they love being who they are. And it's not an increase of the number of queer people. It's just that people are realizing that this is a beautiful thing to be and they should be proud of it. So yeah, my, my message to the church, I think would just be like, Things are moving along and you have to catch up with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, there's no reason to hold on to these beliefs. And um, I, one thing I noticed that Pastor David does in his, um, in his sermons is that he incorporates these social issues into, like the interpretation of the Bible is still there, but they're incorporated into these social issues, which I think is amazing and progressive and not something that, that I've seen done before. So, um, yeah, I, I guess <laughs> to the churches, follow that example. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Any other well, questions that we have for Sydney? I will just say, I, I appreciate you, you saying that, Sydney, because I feel like, I feel like what, what I do has merit when it has the approval of what you do. And who you are, you know, it's like, uh, um, 
It's like a thermometer, really, in some ways, some yeah. kind of way of determining, you know, the, uh, the, the legitimacy and the worth that if, if I cannot, uh, identify with Sydney, then, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Right. I yeah. think that message of like, like I know, like with the pronouns thing, um, between you and I, like, I know that things aren't going to be like, immediate there's not going to be immediate change but i think it's just knowing that people are opening their minds to this like effort my pronoun shift um i understand that i still look like this and i understand that it can be you know difficult um, among my family and my friends especially those who have known me for a really long time but just knowing that they make the effort like when they misgender me and immediately go like oh never mind them um it's just <laughs> it it's you know it's inspiring. Like, mm. I, don't, I don't blame you for not being able to change so fast. Just to know that you're making an effort is, is, is what's important to me personally. I heard a great, and I, I, I'm sorry that I don't have the site, that's the name of the thing, but I'll, I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. I saw a great TikTok mm-hmm. by um, a Black creator, and he described a story similar to what you're just talking about where somebody like corrected themselves about something or something similar to that. Right. And he goes, he said, you know what? I, he goes, I realized that that is a micro progression. And I love that. I was like, that is great because micro progressions are, are a a valid way forward, right? Like they, Mm -hmm. they matter and they're important and um, they make people feel important. Right. Because um, I was having a conversation with someone who I love very much and, um, and they said, you know, we were talking about how, how do we treat people? How do we treat people that we love? And one of the conclusions that we came to is that if something is important to, to you, who I love, then it should be important to me. Right. And so whether or not I understand it, whether or not I get it, whether or not, but if it's, if it's important and I, I hope that I would try to understand it too, but. But if it's important to to you who I love, then it needs to be important to me, you know? So micro progressions, I think are a great way to go. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely put the guy's name in the show notes because he deserves all the credit for that. (laughs) Well, you know, we want to send you off with all the love in the world, Sydney, and to your mother and to your family. Uh, I thank them for, I don't know, to whatever extent they produced of Sydney, um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and sustain and nourish you, uh, because you are a gift, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're a gift to, to the UCLA master's program that you're in you. and you'll be a gift to more of us. And I'm just so excited about this. <laughs> so go for it. Thank you, Sydney, for being with us. I so appreciate it. Thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that. Okay. Well, have a great day. Maybe you as well. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye now. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell, and we want to know about it please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805-703-8393.
because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.